of our hearts and minds upon those words be acceptable in your sight, Lord. You are crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again, Redeemer. Bless you, Father. Amen. Last week, we spent some time with Jesus at a wedding in Cana, Galilee, and uh, saw some pretty powerful things. It was Jesus' first sign, his first miracle, if you want to put it that way, but it wasn't the public one. It was a miracle that only a select few actually got to see and experience firsthand. The servants who handled the water that became wine, his disciples, probably Jesus' mother. Uh, beyond that, we don't know that anybody really ever uh, got the, the, the experience of it to know that he'd done this miracle. But it says at the end that Jesus did this miracle, and one of the purposes was to build the faith of his disciples. Uh, we know for sure those first five had been called, were hanging out with them, so their faith begins to rise up. It says they placed their faith in him in that moment when they saw this amazing miracle. Some time goes by. There's a little bit of a gap here. It might be a few months even. We're not exactly sure. We're picking up here chapter 2, verse 13. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So right off the bat, we should stop and pause a little bit and think about Passover. What's Passover all about? It's, it's one of the big ones, right? Thousands and thousands of people come into Jerusalem for the week of Passover. And we know Passover pretty well because that's when Jesus at the end of his ministry, this is the beginning, at the end of his ministry, Passover is when um, he has the Last Supper, that Passover meal with the disciples. And that Passover meal is all about the lamb, right? This, this innocent lamb gives its life's blood for uh, the forgiveness, for the protection of people from death. Well, Jesus is that perfect Passover lamb. So our, our communion, Lord's Supper, comes from that, all kinds of connections, right? But this is three years before that. It's the first Passover with Jesus and his brand new disciples. So it says the Passover the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, why do we need money changers in the temple? Well, the, the priests had this rule. You couldn't use foreign money as an offering in the temple in Jerusalem. It had to be holy Israel money, uh, temple money. So when you brought your, your cash in from outside, if it was Roman money or anybody else's, you had to stop at a money changer's table, give them your, your Roman money, and then they would exchange and give back to you some temple money. But uh, it's just like when you go to the bank here. If you're going to go to a foreign country and you want to use their currency, what do you have to do? You have to exchange that. And do you pay a fee for that exchange? Sure you do. It's like that, only um, might have been some skullduggery going on and some ripping off happening too. But that kind of stuff's going on. So imagine this. Now, it's not in the Temple of Holy of Holies, but there's the Temple Holy of Holies, which is, um, I don't know, it's about this size. And then you've got the, the, the showbread table, you've got an altar out here, you've got the candelabra, the, the candles that show the Holy Spirit. You got all kinds of stuff out here in this area. And then outside, you've got a, a, an inner courtyard, and then a great big courtyard that wraps around the whole thing, and that's called the courtyard of the Gentiles. If you weren't born an Israelite, but you wanted to worship Israel's God, you could come into that outer court. That outer court area, which is a large area full of Oxen, sheep, pigeons, what else? 
full of animals and money changers. So in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there, making a whip of cords. Jesus drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. Now, the way the Greek is set up here, he's driving out the animals. Okay. Now, the people are probably, in general, going with them, right? I mean, if you're selling the animals and they go running, what do you do? You go chase after your product. So the people are going out, but the, the and he's not whipping the animals physically, right? He's using the whip. That snap, it's a powerful thing. It's scary. It causes animals to flee from it, people too, maybe. So he's using that whip to, to get attention and make it clear. What is his intention? Get out of this space. Why? It says he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Is this a picture of Jesus that we're used to? This isn't the gracious, patient, loving, kind, forgiving Jesus that we're used to seeing most of the time. What's going on here? There's real anger here. Amen. Mm-hmm. Is God ever angry? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. We don't like to focus on that. But, to, boy, we're in Revelation. We're getting deeper and we're into the place where God's wrath, his anger is being poured out in action, in wrath. It's a real thing. God is a holy God. And and there are times when grace comes to an end and the wrath comes down, the punishment and so forth. This is, this is a true thing. We don't see a lot from Jesus, so this really stands out for us. He, Jesus poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make, say it with me, my father's house a house of trade. Where does the zeal, the passion, the anger come from for Jesus on this topic? He sees this building. Uh, is, is Jesus concerned about the building itself? Is he, is he all, you know, of this building? You know, it, it was beautiful. It was magnificent. Fantastic. A lot of the Jews were kind of worshiping the building itself. They were in love with it and how it brought fame to their city. Is that what Jesus cares about? Is that what he upset about? Oh, the oxen went over there and, and besmirched the floor. That, no, that's not what he's upset about. This is not a beautiful temple that I want to glorify. Jesus says, what are you doing to my father's house? What does the father desire to have happening in his house? Worship and prayer and, and his word. God wants his house to be a place where people can connect with him, fellowship with him, be drawn into relationship with him by salvation. God wants this place to be a place of connection with people. All this stuff, what a mess, right? What a mess. So we can see why Jesus is upset, why he takes these measures. Um, I don't know what they're teaching all in the colleges nowadays, but a few years ago I had... Um, a Delite child who had been in our youth group, wasn't a Delite member and stuff, but had been in our youth group for years, was really growing in Christ, went off to uh, one of the liberal colleges in the state, and she called me one day, and they apparently had a Bible study in the dorm or something, and they were on this passage, and I don't know what was going on, but the leader told them that Jesus was whipping the people, and she was upset, and she was mad at Jesus when she called him. 
Whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. Open your Bible. Let's do some reading. So let's be clear about this. He went, we don't even know that he wasn't whipping even the animals. He's using the whip as a tool to, to noise and, and to uh, compel the people and the animals to leave. So he told those silver pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That consume me, it literally means eat me up. So is Jesus' passion here, would you call it intense? Zeal, is that a word you use much? Is that a word that you use much in your own life? Do you think of yourself as a zealous person? We're all, we're Minnesotans. We're like, well, I don't know, zealous. It sounds a little bit out there. It is a little bit out there. Jesus was zealous on this occasion. Is he acting out of the norm? He wasn't whipping people or animals, but he was driving them out of the temple. You know, as I say this passage for the sermon, I'm like, God, I feel like I need some zeal. I feel like I need to have a passion for your house. And way more than that, I need to have a passion for you and your presence and your truth in my life and in this country and everywhere else. I need to have more of a driving desire to, to step out and do something that maybe isn't the norm for me. So I lay that out there for you this morning. Where are we at with zeal? Where are we at with passion for connection with the Lord, passion for his word, passion for truth, our willingness to not let other people talk lies and, and toss up around and just sit there and go, Where's the passion? Where's the zeal there, right? I repent of Minnesota nights. It often leads to sin. In Jesus' name, I repent of that. And I might, and I do, I encourage you to ask, Holy Spirit, where I need zeal and passion to rise up in my life, show me. Show me. So disciples remembered it's written in two different psalms, um, especially Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. Eat me up. Jesus was incensed in this moment. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, he said, oh, wait a minute, the Jews? Aren't you know, the, these are the Jews. Uh, the way John, the gospel writer, uses the term Jews throughout his gospel, it's referring to people who pretty much only care about the ceremony and, and the duds, right? The, the religious actions. The people who don't really care about God's heart, don't really care about the temple being worship, place for worship. All they care about is making money, going through the motions, and lighting the candles at the right time. Okay, got it? Okay, that's the, when he says the Jews, that's who he's talking about. So it says in verse 18, so the Jews said to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Where do you think you get off clearing out the whole place of our, our place of business? We're making money off of this. Have been for years. Where do you get off doing this? By what authority do you do these things? Verse 19. Sometimes God just throws spitballs at us because we're so far off track to make us sit down and go, huh? And think about it and process. Amen? So they're going, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus could have said, you know what? I'm the Messiah. Get a clue. Verse 19, and said, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will 
talking about? Is he, is he going to tear down the physical stone temple that he's standing in? No. What's he talking about? He's talking about his body that will be raised up on the third day in resurrection victory. Now, wait a minute. When does Jesus do this in his ministry? It's just started. How long is it before he dies on the cross and rises from the grave and does this temple three days thing? It's three years. Is Jesus really concerned about them having an answer and a miracle to sign right now? Does God know our hearts and minds? Does he know the answer we need in the moment? Jesus knew they weren't really serious about receiving his authority and who he was. And so he just submits to them. Tell you what, check in in about three years out there in Golgotha. And then three days later, and maybe it'll maybe it'll open your heart and your mind. Maybe you'll be able to receive me then. I'm not giving anything right now because you don't have a heart to hear or ears to listen. And I submit to you, this is fascinating to me, I love this. Three years later when Jesus is on trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, what's one of the biggest accusations they toss at Jesus? You said you'd tear down this temple. That was so mean. You said you'd raise it up in three days. That's a riot. A three-year-old comment was the main thing they threw at him in their false trial. So the, the word of God, God says about his word, this word is an imperishable seed. Say that with me, imperishable seed. Now, if we plant, we plant corn out there somewhere, and let's say it's, it's in total shade and it's cold and it's wet for 20 years, what happens to that seed? Dead as ever there. Or if you put seed, sometimes you put seed in dry storage and maybe it's there for 100 years. Sometimes it will still sprout, but sometimes what? It's going to you know, run stale and die and it won't reproduce. The word of God is imperishable seed. So Jesus shares a word here, a seed with them on this occasion. And three years later, it produces fruit. He rises from the grave. The disciples remember it. It came back up at the trial. Some of the Pharisees became believers later. I wonder if some of the Pharisees were like, oh, remember when he blew us away and made us mad and shocked us that day three years ago? This is what he was talking about. So when you plant seeds in, in children, grandchildren, in each other, when you, whenever you plant seeds, you send out the word of God, you're sending out imperishable seed. And it might be years later that it pops open and bears fruit, takes fruit. Let me say hallelujah. hallelujah. How exciting is that? Yeah. You're thinking about prodigals, right? Oh, Lord, we're, we're crying out and praying for the prodigals. They're walking around with imperishable seed in their pockets. Be praying over that. God, make one of those seeds sprout. Find a way to soften their stuff. All those things. But they've got imperishable seed. It's in here. They've heard it. They've received it. It's there. Oh, praise God for imperishable seed, the power of his word. Amen? Amen. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll raise it up. They're like, what? what are you talking about? The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and it wasn't finished yet. 
I don't know if the United States government was making it or what. <laughs> Just had to throw that. It took him another 30-some years to finish it. And it was only finished for three or four years when the Romans came and destroyed it. Brick by brick. Wow, just crazy, right? The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, three years later, his disciples remembered that he had said this because it's an imperishable seed, and they believed, say it with me, they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now I say this a lot, but we need to hear it a lot. Faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing. What kind of faith is this? Is this the kind of faith that works? The kind of faith that lasts? The kind of faith that grows? Yes, because this faith came by hearing. What's it say? They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Faith comes by hearing. They heard the word from Jesus. They believed it becomes a rock-solid foundation in their lives. Now we're going to see the other side of this coin. Fascinating. Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast at this same occasion... Many believed in his name. Now, isn't that an interesting phrase? Believed in his name. What's going on here? When they saw the signs that he was doing. Okay, is this believing connected to hearing? No, this believing is connected to seeing. Seeing miracles. Is there a difference? And he believed in his name. You dig into that phrase, and that phrase gives us a tip off right away. That it's different than believing in him. You hear the difference, right? Believing in Jesus or believing in his name. Believing in his name means I've seen him do miracles. That guy's the Messiah. It's a mental recognition, it's a mental understanding. Jesus, he's the dude. It's not a believing unto salvation. Is that kind of shocking? I tell you what, folks. There are people all across the land, all around the world, who are sitting in chairs and pews on Sunday mornings, and they have a faith like this. They believe that Jesus is the guy. They've heard about him, and they think it's true. That's not believing unto salvation. It's a little frightening, isn't it? It's okay. The Lord's got this nailed down for us. He's going to help us to have peace here in a moment. Many believed in his name. They said, that's the Messiah, I think. Yeah, he's doing miracles. It's cool. When they saw the signs that he was doing, verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. That's a little different. Jesus didn't trust himself to the people who were believing in the signs and miracles. He didn't give himself to them completely. Why? Because he knew all people. He knows something about them and their response to him. He's like, what's going on here? Verse 25, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So when you compare the two things here, you've got disciples who listen to his word and believe. What does Jesus do with the disciples? He entrusts himself to them. He shows them more and more of him. He reveals more and more things to them. 
But the ones who see the miracles and go, that's really cool. He's the Messiah. They believe because of the things they see, and they only make a mental agreement. Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them, because that's not a faith in the salvation. It's not a faith unto love. It's not a faith unto obedience. It's not a faith that says, Jesus, wherever you would have me go, I will go. If you would have me give my life for you, I will give my life for you. That's faith in the salvation. That's believing in the salvation. You can memorize scripture. You can quote scripture. You can do all kinds of cool things. What's fascinating to me is I'm going to give you a little accidental preview, but Next Sunday, we get into John chapter 3, and that's Jesus visiting with Nicodemus. What's Jesus telling Nicodemus? You must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. It follows immediately after this, where, where Jesus says, you believe in me, in me, and what I say, I'm going to make a catch that's born again. A real living faith that your life is devoted to me now got to be born again. You can't just think right thoughts about me. That's not born again. That's thinking with your brain. Nothing wrong with that. Born again is transformation. Born again is believing in me, loving me, wanting to obey me, giving your life for my sake. So I love that John shares this because we get to share it this morning. And everybody here gets to know for sure whether or not where you're at, what kind of faith is here for you. Is it just stuff about Jesus you know that's pretty cool? Do you think it's true? Have you heard the word? Have you met Jesus? Have you received him as Lord? Not just into your heart. I know there was there was a time when all the songs were about ask Jesus into your heart and going, oh. He wants more. He doesn't want just our heart. Whole thing. I'm all in. Paul said, I present my body, my life, as a living sacrifice to Christ alone. Say all in. All in. Not just my heart. All in. Isn't it good to know God wants to have assurance of faith, assurance of salvation. Sure does. Now I can know. If you're sitting here this morning and you're going, Paul, I've been thinking things about Jesus, but I haven't really given my life to him in faith. Do it right now. What's stopping you? You're you're among friends. You're among a whole bunch of people who've already done this and rejoicing in it. Let's do it now. You can do it online. Let's do it now. My God, thank you for showing us what faith looks like. It's just thinking things about you and being impressed with miracles. That's not enough. But a faith that hears your word and, and trusts in you, Jesus, and loves you and 
welcomes you as Savior and Lord. A faith where we want to give everything back to you because we love you that much. That's a faith that's real and a faith that saves. Jesus, if we haven't been there yet, then now's the moment. Oh, Jesus, forgive us for not getting it, but thank you for helping us to get it right now. So, so we just say, Jesus, we love you. Save me. Come in and take over my whole life. My whole life belongs to you. I love you. I want to please you. I want to devote my whole life to you. I want you to be able to entrust your whole self to me. Glory to you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for a clear word about saving faith. Bless you, Jesus. And thank you, Jesus, for showing us what zeal and passion looks like. Holy Spirit, stir up in us a new zeal and passion for fellowship with the Father, for worship and prayer and time of sharing Christ with others. New zeal. Holy Spirit, come and fire. Thank you, Father. Glorify your name now through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.